Hello and welcome to the C21 podcast. My name's Jonathan Webdale. We hope you're well and safe wherever you are. If you listened to yesterday's episode, you'll have heard Dan Sefton, creator of BBC drama The Mallorca Files, talking about shutting down production on the show and also how as a writer, with credits including ITV series The Good Karma Hospital, he's adapting to life in lockdown. Dan also hinted at the possibility he might be going back to his roots as a fully qualified doctor in order to aid the UK National Health Service's attempts to tackle the coronavirus pandemic. As we all know, events are moving quickly and that interview took place last week. Well, we can confirm that Dan has now put his writing on hold for the time being and is indeed returning to frontline medicine. From all here at C21, Dan, we salute you, your NHS colleagues and medical staff everywhere for the work you're doing and wish you health, strength and safety in all your efforts. We've got another doctor in today's show. Neil Bayer is an American paediatrician and academic who also went into television, consulting, writing and exec producing on the seminal medical drama series ER. He was also exec producer and showrunner on Law and Order Special Victims Unit and more recently on ABC and Netflix drama Designated Survivor. The third and final season of that show was released last year and featured a storyline in which a pandemic swept the US. Rather than COVID-19, however, the virus was one created and unleashed by genetic scientists using what's called CRISPR technology, short for Clustered Regularly Interspaced Short Palindromic Repeats. Neil has written and edited a series of papers on CRISPR for the Johns Hopkins University Press and as a TV writer is also working under lockdown in California. I spoke with him via Skype about the situation in the US right now with Hollywood ground to a halt during what would normally be pilot season an ongoing dispute between writers and agents still unresolved showrunners donating funds to provide relief to the freelance community and medical dramas supplying equipment to hospitals. It's fair to say Neil does not come across as a big fan of Donald Trump and it's worth noting that this interview was recorded a week ago before the US president adopted social distancing in his press conferences, announced a $2 trillion stimulus to the economy and rode back on suggestions that Americans would be able to return to work by Easter. While we discussed TV, Neil was keen also to talk more broadly about the work he's doing in medicine that's fed into his shows, his concerns about the US healthcare system and the wider issues confronting society and the industry moving forwards. Here he is. So I'm Neil Baer. I'm the executive producer and showrunner of Designated Survivor, which is on Netflix now. And I'm uh, uh, hunkering down in Los Feliz, which is in the center of Los Angeles. And uh, it's quiet. Uh, I think people are taking social isolation pretty seriously. When you came up with Designated Survivor, this is a series about a US president, all his successes wiped out in an explosion and the Secretary for Housing and Urban Development, played by Keith Sutherland, has to has to step in. Donald Trump has uh, so far tested uh, negative for COVID-19. But, uh, you know, when, you, when you're putting these stories together, how, do, how does this stuff really feed into uh, to what's going on? How, how is it going to feed into future storylines now? I mean, it, I, I saw one comment from, from a writer suggesting that whatever projects writers have at the moment, they have to bin them and, and start their character development all over again. The world's completely changing. Yes, post-COVID. Well, we used to roll our eyes and undesignated because 
we would try to come up with these storylines and we can't out Trump Trump. So, but I guess we kind of did because we did this pandemic with CRISPR thinking, well, let's cross our fingers. And now Trump is dealing with a pandemic that Kiefer's character was dealing with, particularly in episodes seven, eight, and nine of Designated Survivor in season three with, with, a, with a, a virus that's um, been manipulated using CRISPR technology. And they have to stop it before it's released in Houston. So it's very, it has very uh, similar uh, elements. Um, and we took on other, we took on the opioid issue and really lambasted the, Fed, uh, the Food and Drug Administration through Tony Edwards' character, because Lauren Hawley played his wife who was addicted to opioids. And we, we castigated the FDA for allowing these opioids out onto the market uh, without really giving careful attention to what appears to be knowledge they had about its, its dire um, addictive um, elements. So we were able on our show, we did another episode where we actually were the first show, I believe, to integrate documentary footage into the drama. So Kiefer wants to know what the, the people are thinking. So one of our characters played by Ben Watson, who's a digital maven, goes out and we had a real doc team interviewing people all over the country. So we found a woman whose son had died of type one diabetes, which shouldn't happen in this day and age. Type one is an autoimmune disease. You need to treat it with insulin. And the price of insulin skyrocketed over the last several years in the United States for reasons that aren't clear, except for that there's a monopoly in the three, by the three companies that make insulin. And he was 27, so he didn't qualify for health insurance with his parents in the United States. You can be on your parents' uh, health insurance up till age 26. He made too much money, like $35,000 a year, to qualify for Medicaid. We don't have a national health service. So he was in this really kind of difficult position, as many workers are in the United States, where we don't have single-payer health care. Um, and he rationed his insulin and died. And so we interviewed her, and she talks about this issue on our show. So we were very fortunate to be able to bring to the public's attention these emotional stories that really underscore what we're seeing now with COVID-19, which is how ill-prepared we are as a country uh, to take care of people. Now, pe you know, people in the Trump administration say, well, look at Italy, they're single payer, they have a national health system. And the point is, is that that's really not the issue. It's because everybody is exposed and, and no, you know, no one, yeah, Italy was not prepared in many ways and they didn't respond in, in quickly in the way China did, for instance. So there's there are a lot of reasons in, for what's been happening and it's not just whether we have single payer or, or private, uh, private or a mix, but it, it's going to raise these issues profoundly. COVID is a game changer narratively, I think. Um, you know, there's a lot of discussion now about Trump wanting to send people back to work. And, you know, the Republicans have always been, you know, the so-called right to life people. So I think they're the right to death if they do that, because, you know, we're not really ready to send people back to work without having the knowledge of whether they have been infected or not. Um, I have this, this feeling that I was sick about three and a half weeks ago and this constellation of people around me were also sick with high fevers, bad colds, laryngitis, coughs, and this was 
amongst people who traveled a lot back and forth between New York and Los Angeles, you know, maybe three to four weeks ago. So I think, I don't know for sure if we had COVID-19, but I suspect so. And I think one thing I wish we were doing on a very broad basis was testing for antibodies, because if we could test for antibodies and see who's recovered, we'd have to establish some kind of protocol like testing them or to make sure they're afebrile for seven days. But if, if they have, if they were antibody positive, it means that they were exposed to the virus and presumably uh, they would likely not get reinfected. I know there have been some anecdotal uh, comments about reinfection, but that's not typical for most viral infections. And so I think we need to study that, but one would hope that if one has antibodies, and that's how vaccines are, are made, they um, make your body uh, produce antibodies so that when you're exposed to measles or mumps or chickenpox, or hopefully in the future COVID-19, you'll mount an immune response and you won't get infected. So if you've already been infected, it's presumed that you probably wouldn't be again. And therefore, if we had a cadre of people we knew were well, and had passed the point of uh, being contagious, then they could go back to work. But we're so disorganized in the United States, amazingly, because you know we do so much technical uh, work, particularly what my show uh, on Netflix was about last year, which, uh, the whole season was about CRISPR technology. And that is um, an incredible uh, technology that allows us to cut and paste um, cut out a mutated gene in someone's genome and um, replace it with a, an unmutated or to rewrite their code, so to speak. So we're able to do that, but we can't seem to manage to make masks. And Boston put out a, a request for people to sew masks. So this, there's this chasm between high technology and being prepared, which is really, I think, one of the more profound issues that uh, has come out of this. Uh, we can do amazing things in treating cancer and preventing genetic diseases, but we can't produce masks. So something there's a real there's a real mismatch here, and we have to I hope after this address where the snafus are in the system so that we don't have this happen again. And I think it's a a really good drill, so to speak, for preventing future calamities that I think would be much worse. And that relates back again to my work on CRISPR, which is um, essentially a kind of a dual solution technology. It can do nearly miraculous things like cure sickle cell disease and beta thalassemia to, to diseases of blood cells, but it could also be used to make viruses the likes of which we've never seen, like an Ebola pox, or make viruses even more transmissible. So we have to um, make or pass some laws, I think, to oversee the availability of this technology, particularly limiting who can buy the DNA sequences to make this. So that's what I'm really focusing on, both in my, uh, I did last year on, on Designated Survivor, and in my academic life, I, I wrote and edited, I edited 12 essays in a journal called uh, perspectives in biology and medicine that's uh, published by Johns Hopkins and it's out now online 
and available. And it's with 12 leading um, bioethicists, a number of them from the UK, Peter Mills, Sarah Chan, um, several others, uh, Helen O'Neill, they're all from, from the UK. And uh, they write about the threat of CRISPR and the Dean of Harvard Medical School, who's an expert on the history of CRISPR, also writes the introduction. So we embraced folks from the UK. They're, they're really um, in the forefront in the Nuffield bioethics people are in the forefront of thinking about this. And it's really important to think about it now, even though we're um, immersed in, in COVID, because I think the potential of, of harm and, and, and real pandemic calamity lies with what people can do with CRISPR. Bringing it back to the um, TV production side of things, which is obviously a microcosm in the, 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 the scale of things that you're talking about. But as far as Los Angeles is concerned right now, both, you know, for, for, for people everywhere, but for the industry, the, the, the whole thing's in shutdown. Is that right? Completely closed down. It's the first time in history that the box office was zero. So in terms of measuring it from going going to a movie theater, though maybe one can go in Idaho because the governor of Idaho is one of the last people to not really instate any measures, um, but almost every other state has about gathering. Um, so that's it's a game changer and it's going to change how we do business. It may push uh, movies online more quickly. You know, there was a lot of debate, you know, that included Spielberg and theater owners about not putting movies online simultaneously when they're when they're released, but they have to do that now or hold them. So I think when we have these these major upheavals, it forces creative changes. And I think it's a different way of doing business, certainly. And if they can charge for views online then and and make money, then I think that will happen and there's no stopping it. So so there's there's going to be creative structural changes and then you know we'll see if they're you know every pilot stopped cbs i know i have friends who do shows for them and they stopped on march 13th so there's no production going on there are virtual rooms going and there is business going on in hollywood so i know that because i'm involved in a couple of projects i'm not doing a virtual room yet but i have friends who are in virtual writers rooms so writing can continue and it's kind of like the Brady Bunch when you see all those little squares of the the the, the nine of them, um, the the six kids, uh, the parents and the housekeeper. Well, it's that way in a virtual room and you have virtual whiteboards and you can put powerpoints up and you know you can you can do that fairly easily. I think it's better to be with people because you lose a lot in terms of gestures and vocal tone but you 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 get a lot of it when you're not just texting or doing it by by FaceTime but when you're actually in a room and seeing people so it's, it'll be interesting to see how that changes the culture can can writers be from around the world do they have to come to Los Angeles or to or to London or to New York to be in a writer's room if you really want a writer and they can't leave because they have a child or or something then uh that keeps them wherever they live can you can you make arrangements probably could you know so we're seeing a lot of changes and we'll see if unscripted shows make a big 
you know, force will come back again because they're cheap and quick to make. And that's what happened in the strikes. And the other side of it is, is that the Writers Guild was just about to go into negotiations. As you, as you know, the writers fired their agents by a vote over two issues. One is packaging and taking a percentage of the budget by the agencies that make the deal and by owning uh, production. And so there was a lot of acrimony, but now that the business has completely shut down, it's a question what leverage the writers have now, because we are essentially in a strike, though it's even worse because even during the strikes, they were still worse in the sense that it's that people are out of jobs, but people were still shooting. They just weren't writing, but now nobody's working. And so, you know, hundreds of thousands of people out of jobs and then all the ancillary connections of the caterers and the, the fabric providers. And, you know, we could go painters and on and on and on and on that, in, that envelops, um, making a show, you know, we could just take one department and say, Oh, um, you know, wardrobe. So there's stores that sell these clothes. When, when, when I did designated, they would shop for clothes for Kiefer, Tony Edwards or Julie white, and they would make clothes and they would buy fabric and they would have to have irons and ironing boards and, you know, and it goes, and you start to go, Whoa, you know, it just spirals out. So you could take any department and see that it's not just about those people, but it's about all the businesses that feed into every department. So, you know, choose, could be from catering to lighting to wardrobe to makeup. So, so many people out of out of jobs, it's going to be interesting to see what happens with the writers because I don't think they have the leverage that they may have had in the past. I mean, I can't imagine writers saying, you know, we're going to now go on strike after we've been through this. It gives, it, it's, um, puts them in a very uh, arduous position, but it's very, very similar to the last strike we had. We had a strike in 2007 over, you know, streaming before we really knew all about streaming and, and um, other issues. And then the next year was the calamitous 2008, you know, falling through the floor uh, financial crisis. So that kind of forced the writers just to look at their health and pension funds and things like that. And this is kind of the same thing where the writers, you know, they're not on strike, but they're, they're really, you know, had some, some power and some, some very important legal points that the, the courts are just deciding. And then this happened very similar to the financial crash of 2008. So it's just bad timing. Uh, unfortunately. So it's a, a real mess, but we'll see new, new, um, new ways of dealing with digital technology come out of this. And we'll see, you know, I've heard that it's been a boon for uh, broadcast networks that because more people are watching television, it's actually helped broadcast networks, um, though they can't make new products soon. And people are watching comforting shows, you know, a lot of repeats. And it's interesting, as we were talking about before, because Designated Survivor did extremely well in the UK because Netflix gives the numbers for the UK. It was number four when it premiered for the first couple of months after um, Blacklist, um, When They See Us, and, and um, uh, Jane the Virgin. And over the weekend, Kiefer was trending in the UK over this whole discussion about your Designated Survivor. So... Um, that 
and the fact that we did this whole um, uh, season-long story about a pandemic, I think has brought the show back to um, people. And it's really interesting to see the conversations they're having on Twitter about it and how did we know about it? And, and the answer is because we talked to world authorities at MIT and Harvard and Johns Hopkins to give us information so that we can, you know, be as, as realistic as possible. Um, you talk about the fact that hundreds of thousands of people's jobs, a lot of freelancers obviously uh, are out of work. Netflix has launched a $100 million emergency fund for, for workers in the creative community affected by the COVID-19 crisis. That's a significant amount, presumably welcomed by the industry. What else is being done and um, what kind of a difference can that money make? Well, there have been, um, on the writer's side, there was a, a kind of a GoFundMe done by writers. Shonda Rhimes and Greg Berlanti were spearheading it along with some others and um, donating. We would we donated money to a fund to support assistants who, you know, make very little money and work long hours, and they're the first to certainly suffer. So there's a fund that the writers um, established for them. There was a, 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 a concerted effort by a couple of people who work on TV medical series. Like I did ER the first seven years, so I know a lot of those folks. And so I put them in touch with people on New Amsterdam and they were looking for donations of masks and gloves and, and gowns because we use the real thing on ER, of course, and they still do on Grey's Anatomy and and the good doctor and new Amsterdam. And so they're, they're, um, I know that those shows have donated uh, protective gear to the cause. So there's lots of ways of storytelling um, along with donating money that I think is helpful because we see the president every day when he gives his, his um, briefing shoulder to shoulder with the supposed authorities on this, these issues. I say supposed because I have many issues as a physician with some of them, not Fauci so much, but the others. And they're all standing shoulder to shoulder. So as a TV writer, producer, showrunner, and having written, I wrote along with a, a foundation called the Kaiser Family Foundation, uh, the first study that looked at the impact of television on health knowledge, and it was for ER on human papillomavirus and, and cervical cancer. And we found that it was profound what people learned you know, Juliana Margulies was a role model, as was Laura Innes in that, that episode, talking about a young woman who was exposed to HPV and had cervical cancer and what that means and how to protect yourself and, and the like. And so we're saying social distancing all the time, which makes sense. And we see a president of the United States shoulder to shoulder with health, with the s supposed leading thinkers in this uh, on this and the vice president and makes no sense and it's terrible role modeling so we know this fundamentally from the work we do as television writers that we you know not only what we say but what we show has an impact so we're showing exactly the opposite of what we're saying and it just makes absolutely no sense the prospect of getting back to work seems a, a long way off at the moment, uh, to, to most people, I think. Um, That's what Trump does. I mean, he's he's now intimating that the cure, quote, the cure is worse than the treatment. 
Just as we uh, consider this, though, or just as you were sort of referencing earlier on, normally the industry in the US would be gearing up for the upfronts in New York and then the LA screenings. How is that playing out and how do you think it's going to play out when it comes to the fall season? It may end up fronts. You know, upfronts were kind of creaking along anyway. So I don't know what we need upfronts. I mean, that's a time where, you know, I can remember in the late 90s when I was on ER or in the early 2000s when I was doing SVU and the upfronts were, you know, a big, big party for a week and all of the networks were presenting and there was a lot of food and a lot of, uh, you know, uh, meets and greets. And now, with the, particularly with social media too, there's just a whole new way of doing business. So it could sweep away, you know, not only upfronts, but how is this going to change the Oscars? And there was a, a story yesterday about how are we going to do for your consideration with the Emmys? And um, do we really want to send, you know, these jewel boxes like, you know, Mrs. Maisel and, and other shows that spend who knows how much money on these ridiculous boxed sets. I mean, it's like enough to make you not want to watch a show um, because the amount of money spent making this jewel box or other junk that they send us with a DVD or a little flash drive is absolutely, um, you know, just vulgar. And so I think that's going to change because I think people are going to go, you just can't, you can't spend money on, you know, this kind of these, these just atrociously overspent promotions, you know, you could go to the grocery store at Whole Foods and there were Mrs. Maisel's grocery bags and stuff. And it's like, you know, how is this going to make us think about how we do business, how we talk about shows, how we make shows, how we advertise shows, because it's all now set against a new narrative of, of need and people out of jobs. So do we really want to spend whatever amount of money it was, but it was a lot of money to the whole television academy on junk as opposed to just putting it online and getting the code which a lot of companies are doing so it's just everywhere it's just like you pick you pick a topic and i can talk about how it's going to you know how there's upheaval if it's the emmys is it the oscars is it the way we advertise as you said is it upfront it's everything and the longer we're not at work the more time we have to think about, well, maybe we don't have to do it that way. You strayed quite a long way off of the uh, my question about the impact on the the pilot season and and the uh, what, what the full season might look like. You talked about earlier on that you know repeats know. and things. I mean, what do you think? We don't know. Pilot season, the pilots all stopped. So I think they're looking at. Here's what I've heard. I hear they're looking at what was shot and seeing what's feasible to continue and what's not. It's kind of like when we went on strike, when when writers were went through for, force majeure and they lost their deals, there's going to be a reassessment because money's going to be tighter. So so in terms of the pilot season, there's no pilot season There's because there's no pilots right now. And also if the pilot season had changed. You're really talking a lot about broadcast network pilots, not about streaming and cable because those are made all the time. And so there'd already been a forceful change across the industry. But now this change with the big four, who knows? I mean, I think they're trying to figure that out. The fact that this is happening at a time when streaming is booming, however, and Disney Plus has recently launched, HBO Max is coming around the corner, Quibi, NBC Universal's <laughs> Peacock as well. I mean, those are 
presumably going to boom as a result of this? It's hard to know, but one thing that they have going for them is they have a they all have huge inventories of old shows that were very very popular. So my show SVU is uh, is going to be on Peacock, for instance, and um, uh, you know Friends, The Office. Seinfeld, they're, they're, I think Seinfeld went to Netflix. I'm not sure, but I think Friends went. I'm not. Went, did Friends go to HBO Max? I know that The Office went back to NBC. So it's going to be really interesting to see because what the one of the secrets, you know, that we all it's not a secret because we know it is what were the most popular shows on Netflix? Friends and The Office. What was a hugely popular show on Hulu amongst millennials? ER repeats. So these these kind of classic shows are really finding new life amongst millennial and Gen Zers and all of those. And so, again, who knows, you know, what shows are going to really take hold. What's interesting before all this is that we did an episode, I wrote an episode for ER in 1995 with George Clooney saving a kid in a tunnel. And it aired in November and it got 48 million viewers. And then when, when Game of Thrones had its finale, I think it was touted as having 19 million viewers for its finale. So that's less than half the number of people who just on a Thursday night watched ER. So we've already changed in ways we, it's almost unimaginable from everybody in 1995 gathered to watch over, it had a, over 40 share, which meant that of all people watching TV, almost half were watching ER that night. And we just will never see the likes of that again. There are too many choices. So it's changed the whole culture of the way we watch television, the way we share television, the way we talk about it, the way we interact with it. And that's all that already had changed with the example I give you gave you with Game of Thrones, that this is a high number in light of all the choices we have now, but it's a nothing number, you know, um, in terms of what was the past. For instance, NCIS a few years ago was getting 19 million viewers. NCIS, a show you don't hear a lot of talk about, but majorly watched and still. It's, it's obviously been a boom period in television in recent years. Um, you talk about the way that this crisis is going to fundamentally change the way that, that companies spend money. We're talking as, as well about showrunners contributing to efforts to help support freelancers. But some of these showrunners are, you know, being signed up to deals which are worth hundreds of millions of pounds. Yes, Netflix has contributed 100 million pounds, but uh, that's to support hundreds of thousands of people, whereas these showrunner deals uh, are are for multiple hundreds of millions. Uh, Is that something you think might change as well? It could change, and there aren't a lot of people who have those, and certainly the business has changed where it's not a syndicated-driven business where the money to be made was in syndication, you know, not not in these kinds of deals. So, um, and also I think when these deals get reported, I don't, they're not necessarily the salary that somebody is getting, but this is the cost of what their shows are going to be. And then you start to calculate, okay, well, you know, when I did SVU, I think I calculated that there were like 250 people working on the show in some way or fashion directly, not, not even talking about the vendors. So there are so many people involved so I think it makes for good headlines, but it's not really fully accurate. Um, it, it is about 
what they're going to be spending on the shows and those shows pay the salaries of hundreds and hundreds of people. So, um, you know, we'll see what, we'll see how that shakes out. Neil, thank you very much. I mean, how are you sort of spending your time now? I mean, you're, you're obviously heavily involved still in, in, uh, medical, uh, academia and as I, well as, as well as writing. So what, what's your kind of focus right now? Well, I teach a course at the Kennedy school of government at Harvard by teleconference. So I, it's, it is like the Brady Bunch, the, 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 it's a seminar. So all the students are little squares. So it's pretty interesting. And uh, I'm writing uh, on a couple of pilots and we're pitching. So pitching is still going on and um, writing op-eds and writing for journals and just keeping busy thinking and reading. It's interesting that the one positive I see out of this, at least for myself, is that it's reduced the daily noise in the sense of you get a, I get a lot more work done because I'm not interrupted. I don't have to drive take 20 minutes to go to get a coffee and then 20 minutes back and, and all of that. It's like, go to the kitchen, turn on the hot water and come back. And it's like, wow, there's like all this time and no commuting time, which is one of the reasons I wanted to leave LA. So we'll see how that impacts people and how many people end up working from home again. Well, the, the environmental impact and the uh, fall in CO2 emissions this has been pretty staggering, I think. Absolutely. Blue skies in China again. Okay. Well, hopefully there's blue skies ahead for all of us. Uh, yes. wishing, you, wishing you and all of your friends and colleagues well over there. To you too. Thanks very much. Bye-bye. Bye. Neil Bayer, MD and exec producer, showrunner of Designated Survivor. That's all for the podcast today. There'll be more from us tomorrow. Until then, stay safe and stay up to date with all the latest industry developments by following C21 online, on mobile and social media. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 